Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den, and today we have a live studio audience in the house. <laughs> and I am with someone that Kay and Steve Grison both told me, Steve, when he is in town or if you're out in D.C., you got to interview this guy, Joe Basil. So, Joe... Welcome. I apologize that they made you do this. <laughs> but I appreciate the opportunity. First question I open every podcast with, what you smoking? I am smoking one of our boutique cigars. Uh, it's called Safari Cigar. You can get them on safaricigar.com, some retail outlets in Austin, Texas. This is our, we only do one blend of tobacco, multiple sizes. I'm smoking the 60 gauge box pressed Maduro, Nicaragua, 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 and it's It'd be my favorite, even if I wasn't the owner of the company. <laughs> well, you've been handing them out to everyone that's here, and I like it a lot. I'm a Maduro guy, okay. and it totally fits my palate. When you lit up, you were like, okay, this one's a little more harsh than normal, but it just fits my palate really well. We get pretty spoiled. Our team down there and the, and the farms down there are just, I think it's the best in the world right now. Not to say that other places won't catch up. Or Cuba won't come back yeah. with their soils. But I think from a terroir, you know, really good dirt, making great tobacco, I think it's still the best. All right. So talk about Nicaragua, because it's a country that usually whenever I have a Nicaraguan cigar, they're among my favorites. And the first cigar I ever fell in love with was the Illusione one-off Nicaraguan sure. blend. I believe it still is. And so what is it about Nicaragua that... A lot of cigar smokers I know, it's their favorite. I think it's the dirt. I think it's the unmolested, unabused volcanic soils. It's the reason Cuba, you know, had the best at cigars in the world for so long. You know, I think that's a political problem and an economic problem on why I think some of those tobacco soils have degraded in Cuba. You know, if you haven't had a tractor in 60 years, it's not like you're doing conservation yeah. tillage and watching all your organic content in your soil and micronutrients. And I just think it was a frontier-type situation with a very similar setup, terroir soil setup and climatic setup that Cuba got spoiled with for so long. Now, before we started recording, we were talking about the current government situation in Nicaragua being a communist government right now. Is there any fear that they are going to go the route of Cuba and not be as good that, in that's why 25 we talked, years? That's why we talked about it before you started recording. No, no comment is the official position. We love every single person in Nicaragua. Obviously love the soil and what they're able to do here in this business. And we hope and pray for that beautiful people to be really unleashed for what they can do for each other and what they can bless the world with. We're excited for the future in Nicaragua. All right, so that was a good PC answer. I like that. I like that. So last PC answer. Sorry. <laughs> so you're, you're messing with my tobacco. I'm going to tell the company line for on that one. So you were a Minnesota kid. I was. I was born in Mankato, Minnesota, while my dad was in seminary to become a Lutheran pastor. He's a ordained a lot Lutheran of Lutherans pastor. up there in the Midwest. Yeah, the wrong side of the tracks in Minnesota is Catholic, the Catholic side of the tracks. It's not based on race. It's based on Catholic Lutheran Civil War situations. That doesn't really translate in a lot of the rest of the country. It's fascinating. I feel like a large amount of my doctrinal training was yeah. creative ways to hate Catholics. 
and I'm healed from a lot of that. I can have Catholic friends now. <laughs> so what kind of family? You said your dad became a pastor. So my, pastor. so my two older siblings were born on the farm. He was a dairy farmer in northern Michigan, around Hillman, Michigan. And my mother was a farm kid from northern Michigan as well. She swore that she would never marry a farmer, a pastor, or a doctor. And she married a farmer that became, became a, a pastor, pastor and has doctoral level uh, academic work. So if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plan. And I was the first sibling born while he was in seminary after he left the farm. So I never lived on the family farm. And then there's two more siblings after me. So I'm middle, middle. Okay. Older brother, older sister, younger brother, younger sister. So what kind of family situation was it growing up? Just a great family, good Midwestern? It was good. We were yeah. poor. You know, they, that church body took the uh, poverty oath pretty seriously. So, but I it, it never noticed. The first time I noticed was when I went over to a friend's house and his mom cooked spaghetti. And it was just nasty. I just thought it was horrible. And I was explaining it to my mom afterwards. I was like, Mom, her spaghetti is not good. Like, something was wrong. And she's like, Joe, it's probably because they use beef. Like, we couldn't afford to buy beef. And so we'd always use venison from deer that, yeah. we, you know, we would fill the freezer with. And so, it was, you know, it was just the fat content in the hamburger, like, just hit me. I was like, oh, that's not what spaghetti tastes like. And since then, I think we technically rose above the poverty line after my two older siblings left. You know, so once they went to college, then we weren't dividing, you know, the $20,000 salary by seven people. But it was really good. It's really stable. Both my parents, you know, looking back and learning more of other people's stories, I was very blessed at home. That's awesome. So did you play any sports in high school? Did you? Yeah, I was a four-sport jock. Did your parents stay in Mankato after? So he had parishes in southern Minnesota, northern Iowa, Ohio. So we were in northwest Ohio from first grade through the end of seventh grade in my life. And then he took a call back to a church in Mankato where he went to seminary two weeks before I started eighth grade. So eighth grade high school in Mankato, Minnesota. And I was four sport jock, basketball, you know, was probably the thing, but I did all the others too. But I was also a nerd. You know, I was, you know, they would diagnose me now and put me on a bunch of stuff and kick me out of the classroom now. But I was really blessed with some great teachers that distracted me with academic pursuit. What were you interested in in high school? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I thought I knew since I was in fourth grade that I wanted a Harvard MBA. Really? It was pretty sad looking back on it. And I'm healed from that now, but it's, I would literally take all my toys in my bedroom and I'd outline an office. Like I wouldn't play house or, you know, cowboys and Indians. I would literally play, Business. you know, Scranton, uh, the office. And it's a sad life, you know, it was a sad childhood dream looking back, but it was definitely my, probably my natural gifting and tendencies and personality it was business. Yeah. Entrepreneurships. So where'd you go to school then? I uh, went to, my ACT was perfect, except the English section, which I blame on my hick parents whenever I misspeak. But math and all the other stuff was perfect. I think I missed one math question. Wow. So I was, you know, had the academics, the National Merit Scholar thing, the perfect ACT, and then the Midwest poor kid, 
four sport jock plus those academics that it worked for all the Ivy Leagues and stuff. And I thought I wanted that. So I, you know, did all those applications, got in. And then the summer before, when I was deciding, the summer before undergrad, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and it, it hit me weird. Really? And, and I think it was just the realization that I was such a cheap ass that if I went to school, you know, out at Harvard, I probably wouldn't even come back for Christmas, mm. you know, just because I was a cheap ass. Yeah. And I wasn't paying for college because if you're a poor kid and, you know, and you have perfect academics, all those colleges are free. And my other siblings were in college. So the FAFSA was awesome, you know, the need based aid and stuff. And it like that really bothered me that my mom might not be there when I come back, you know, when she's battling cancer. And so I had applied to a couple schools in Minnesota just to humor my career counselor, whatever they call them in high school. And in one of the schools was this small liberal arts college. It's a campus of the University of Minnesota in Morris, Minnesota. And it's like a 2000 kid undergrad, you know. Where's Morris? West Central. Okay. It's on the way to Fargo, Alexandria, Minnesota, past St. Cloud. Okay. Out on the plains, uh, which is more pronounced in December and January when that you're out on the plains. But I just loved it. Really? And. And I realize now the reason I thought that campus was different, because at all the Ivy League colleges, when I would do the visits and all these, you know, expensive, you know, hippy dippy uh, liberal arts colleges that I thought I wanted to go to because they were highly ranked colleges. Everyone was sad, like no one was smiling, you know, like everyone's like, you know, angry at their parents for being rich enough to send them to that school or something. And at Morris, everybody was smiling and saying hi, and it just seemed like everyone was friendlier. But I realized after I enrolled that they literally send out emails like, hey, a bunch of kids are visiting today. Be nice to all these kids. And it was this scam that the admissions <laughs> office was running. Like, just be nice today, everybody. Smile today. But it was really special going to kind of a real school with real human beings rather than a Harvard or a Yale or yeah. UPenn or something like that. Yeah. So at the school, did you study business then? Yes. Finance and economics are my undergrad majors at Morris. And two weeks before I went to school, I got the meningitis vaccine before you move into the, the barracks, before you move into the dormitories, and it gave me meningitis. And so I was in the emergency room, you know, four hours later, you know, didn't know if I was going to make it, spinal taps, you know, trying to, it was bad. Wow. And that headache, so I went from running, you know, five to 10 miles a day to light sensitivity, like couldn't go outside, just horrible headaches. And I basically had that. And it, essentially what happened was it inflamed the lining of my brain and all the spinal fluid and damaged the lining of my brain. And I had that headache from August 4, 2004, for basically seven years before I had a day oh my off from that headache. And it was... You know, when you're the cool kid and you're the stud and you make sure everybody realizes that and you go into that mess with me a lot. But it probably saved me from getting in a lot more trouble in college. So what did you do after school then? So during school, I show up on campus and I knew I knew my parents were pro-life. Like my mom went to the March for Life. I typecast them as single issue voters, but they really were. It was the life issue for them. And so that, you know, as a kid, I knew, you know 
we didn't like Mr. Clinton because, you know, he wasn't pro-life. Like, that was my framework for politics. Yeah. And I get to the university, and I'm in my economics course, and it's this avowed Iranian Marxist teaching that I'm good friends with that was teaching economics, and he said something factually, and I just felt that it probably wasn't true. And I literally, like, huh, you know, like, kind of laughed, like, shocked laugh. And then I turned around, I was in one of the front rows, and I turned around and, like, nobody had raised their hand. Nobody was going to question this guy. And it was just a surreal moment when I was like, I know that a bunch of Midwest kids do not all think that that's true, what he just stated. And it was kind of this Twilight Zone moment. Do you remember what he said? No. Okay. It was too shocking to remember. (laughs) But then I realized that's basically all they do for four years. (laughs) It's an American university. But that was kind of the first time when it hit me as like shockingly, you know, on its face, you know, intellectually lazy indoctrination that was happening at this university. And so it was soon thereafter that I decided to start a conservative libertarian newspaper on campus. So it was my first semester, fall semester, my freshman year. And like that was the most rebellious thing I could think to do at an American (laughs) university was be a conservative and tell everybody about it. And how did that go over? It was lead balloon. It was awesome. It was was amazing. (laughs) And it was to the point where our first cover story was about a well-loved history professor that was up for tenure who, you know, had twice the case or twice the course load and like 10 times the mentorship and internship advisor mode and thesis at like three times as many thesis kids that he was advising but he was a dude. Was the professor there at yeah, the University at of Minnesota? So Morris? this was our this was our first edition, the, the fall yeah. of two thousand four, and the paper was called the Counterweight. And we're talking to the search committee, and it was very clear, like no, like because there's a bunch of old white guys that work at the history department, we are not allowed to hire a white guy for this position, even though they had this adjunct professor that was like rock star professor on campus, and he just had no chance in heck because he was born the wrong color. And the wrong gender, you know, that hit me weird because I lined up with him on gender and color or happened to, I realized like, this is not about merit. This is not about, you know, what you pour into the community. This is a game of checking boxes that really reduces everyone's value, I think. But because we hadn't launched yet, they didn't realize what we were doing. So they were having like frank conversations about how exciting is it that we're going to discriminate in this hiring uh, issue for this professorship? Isn't that so exciting that we can discriminate like this? And we recorded it all and wrote it all up in this big 6,000 word expose. And it was awesome. And that's how it got started. And it got to the point where... Did anything ever happen with that? No. The Titanic was heading a certain direction culturally at most universities in this country. But it got to the point where, to make sure the administration was reading the paper, I would personally take copies up to the administration building and you know, give it to all their secretaries. And the chancellor of the university, what would be the president of that yeah. university, would literally be reading it you know, to check for scandals before I could walk up there and give them a copy. Like it was, we definitely kept them on their toes, and it was a lot of fun. Is the paper still going? Yeah, they changed the name to the North Star. Yeah. Which was Frederick Douglass's abolitionist newspaper. And then you have the Minnesota North Star, the hockey team thing. And you may not know, but Frederick Douglass was a cigar guy. I believe it. Yeah. He was a badass in a lot of ways. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Cigars have that effect on people. 
So where'd you go after that? So during that time in undergrad, I got roped into two major projects otherwise, and it was, I started running some state Senate races mm-hmm. and it was kind of these throwaway races. It was challenge races to leadership. So really powerful senators. So, you know, nobody could donate, you know, nobody could help you challenge the Senate majority leader and the chairman of the agricultural committee. So I was kind of on my own and I negotiated really good pay. And then I negotiated a full credit internship. It's like 15 or 16 credits. I forget what it was Yeah, to run these campaigns because I didn't want to fall behind in caseload or uh, course load. Yeah. And I got this professor who I love, but Marxist, lesbian, poli sci, you know, yeah. professor to sign off on these internship credits to run in that I was running Republican campaigns that year and for 30 grand a piece I won every single one of those races so I took out the majority oh and it was 2006 gosh. so it was just oh a bit, it was a really bad it was kind of the Iraq war midterm it was a really bad year to have an R behind your name especially in a political for an election and basically no one else won in the whole state and I won all three of my races including beating the majority leader and the chairman of the egg committee wow and so that kind of sends you on a trajectory. What, what do you think was the secret sauce in getting those victories? So we didn't have any money because nobody can give against leadership and it's campaign finance restricted. So we had about like 30 grand a piece to win state senate challenge races. And I'd been hanging out with all my liberal buddies in college. So I'd been trained by the left when it came to politics and community organizing and door to door and all these, the way they win races, you know, when they're not supposed to, they do the work. And so I just thought that made sense that that was a more effective way to win campaigns. But, you know, my friends who are Republicans don't campaign like that. They don't have a culture of that, even if they do campaign like that. Yeah. And we went out the first day using kind of the Republican data, and it was just wrong. Like, it wasn't inaccurate. It wasn't, you know, like 20% wrong. Like, it was opposite wrong. Like, really, you would be better to not use their data. And I ran back to the office because it was another one of those surreal moments in my life where I was like, how could it be this wrong? And I looked up all three of my Democratic opponents in those races, and they were all in the data as good conservatives, turn them out for the primary, good Republicans, make sure you turn them out for the general election. The only three people that if you Google them literally have a D behind their name when you Google them because they're sitting senators of the other party in that case. And they were in our data as, you know, make sure you get these guys to vote for your guy. These are, these are your voters right here. And so it was kind of this surreal moment. And then I looked up other friends and donors where I knew their, kind of their background. And, and then I realized we couldn't use that data. So what we did was we basically dropped the R word off of the literature and started going door to door to all the voters that were going to vote. And it was fascinating because we'd have these conversations with these you know, 90-year-old widows, you know, in rural Minnesota, and they would agree with every issue that, w- that we were campaigning on, and then they would be like, well, is he a Republican or a Democrat? And I was like, well, he's running as a Republican, but, you know, as you just said, like, you agree with him on every single issue. And they would kind of, you know, look off to the side, and they'd be like, I don't know, Roosevelt saved the farm. And I was... So these were literally Roosevelt Democrats, JFK Democrats. Like, they're good right-wingers nowadays. Yeah. But they were still voting for the Democrats because it's Minnesota. They're, you know, it's tradition. It's, you know, their dad was a Democrat, their father was a Democrat, and they're still a Democrat when they're 90 years old, even though, you know, because of the realignment, they don't align with that party at all in the state of Minnesota. 
But because we were there talking about issues and because they would meet us, we could carve off all those votes and we just kicked everybody's ass. <laughs> so after that... So that set up the flipping of that legislature for the first time in 40 years, the next cycle. And there's basically not a parliamentarian alive that had ever helped Republicans run the Minnesota government because it had been 40 years since they had controlled the legislature. Oh my gosh. So that was an interesting experiment, and obviously... Well, now, you know, now Minnesota is a purple state, really. Now isn't it is, it? yeah. And culturally, it always has been, but they, you know, my friends who are Democrats there are just really good at politics, and they're really good at campaigning, and, you know, it's the only state Reagan couldn't figure out for a reason. And so that kind of pushed us into politics, pushed me into politics when you have a golden touch like that. Like, lobbyists would literally get the Godfather trilogy as a gift to me once I was a civilian the next week, like... Because nobody does that. Nobody yeah. takes out you know the most powerful leaders in a legislature like that, especially with thirty grand, you know, in a bad year, stuff like that. It was awesome, <laughs> and and I just wanted the challenge, right? Like, yeah. if you want me, if you want my wife to work on something, just say it's impossible and nobody can do it, and that's all we need. That's all the motivation we need. And so that was one of those things. And then at a similar time, I was at a wedding reception, and it came out that the gentleman sitting next to me own the ethanol, the corn ethanol plant in town. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't resist because I'd studied it. And I was like, just so you know, the chemistry is crap, the biology is crap, the economics is crap, the subsidy is horrible, and you should get out of that business before the bubble pops. Now, you know, that's just what I told them because it's the truth. And it was really awkward for the rest of the table and they're like trying to save me from myself, you know, from mouthing off to this guy. And... The next morning, it was a Sunday church wedding, and the next morning at like 7.30 in the morning, I get a phone call, and it's that guy it's, mm -hmm. that I had told off about his ethanol yeah. investments being bad investments, and he asked me to come out to the office, and I did, and they couldn't get their permits. They're building big dairy farms, like 7,000 cow dairy partnership farms and every farmer in a five mile radius partners but then there's one farm rather than everybody milking cows separately but they couldn't get their permits environmental review type permits for these dairies and he's like could you get these permits for me and i was like yeah and i know nothing about <laughs> I don't know anything about that industry but even though my family was in it, i didn't know how the permit process worked like yeah i was just being cocky joe and i started negotiating kind of and i realized like this guy although having a huge you know, billion dollar company, he's on the ropes. Like this company doesn't exist because they can't get their permits. And so I started negotiating things like, well, I get to build my own team. He's like, yeah. And I was like, you know, my salary is going to be this, but in 60 days, we'll talk about my real salary once you see what I'm worth. And I'm kind of grabbing all these concessions. And I was like, okay, one more thing. My title needs to be director of sustainability. And he like, he just blew up. And this is a serious Christian, like, doesn't have cable TV, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, like, hardcore apostolic Christian, so Anabaptist yeah. heritage. And he's, you know, he's swearing at me for saying the S word, the sustainability word. And I was like, no, 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 like, understand me. Like, here, I'm business development. Like, I'm trying to, you know, allow your business to grow and thrive and exist in the future. But when I go down to the state capitol, when I'm talking to you know, environmental regulators, my business card needs to say director of sustainability because that's the paradigm that I'm going to push your entire business through to allow you to 
exist in the future. It's a good word to the people that you're talking to. And he sits back and he kind of realizes what I just did and yeah. realizes that that's the only way yeah. this billion dollar company even exists in the future. Yeah. And so he, he literally like sits back in his chair and thinks about it and smiles and realizes what I saw. And he's like, your office is downstairs, first one on the left, there's a laptop and a credit card down there. I need you to present in Puerto Rico next week on everything we're doing around sustainability. <laughs> So it was kind of this 180, and he let me run with it because I saw it, and we just pushed his whole business through that. And within a matter of months, we're designing, permitting, and building farms, 7,000 cow, you know, mega dairy farms that don't stink. Yeah. Like millionaires were building their houses across the street from 7,000 cow dairy farms. Wow. And we were generating renewable electricity with anaerobic digestion. So the first 21 days, the liquid manure was in a football-sized tank, 16-foot high buried in the ground we're catching all the methane off that running it through a mega set of gen sets that add up to a megawatt of electricity and selling it onto the grid as renewable electricity but then that's the stink you're literally you know burning the stinky part yeah. of this farm and selling it you know for renewable energy that has 98 percent uptime on like wind solar and everything else that was in these renewable portfolios and everything we did made money yeah. So we were able to design all these systems that made it not stink, you know, that managed the manure, that made it so you didn't have to stir the manure lagoons in the spring when farm countries smell so horrible. And what it, it all either saved enough money to pay for itself or netted cash. This was mid-2009. Yeah, okay, okay. When we were doing this. And you and had no experience with this. You were nothing. kind of learning this on the go. Well, no. In this country, nobody had really done that yet. Really? So, you know, a lot of the technology was in place in, uh, in Western Europe and Germany and, yeah. and places like that. So we, we were able to, you know, pull technology. And, like, our gen sets were from Spain. And a lot of the digester technology was from Germany. But nobody had really cracked the code in the States. And a lot of them have done it just for permitting reasons. You know, just for, yeah. you know, environmental permit reasons. But not from a business Perspective. It, was a, it was a business decision, and it just happened to be that much better for the community, that much better for the neighbors, that much better for the cows, that much better for the environment. So, and I, and I love that stuff. Like, really? that's the kind of stuff that I want to spend my time thinking about designing, you know, these intractable, impossible problems. I love designing solutions for that. So, where'd you go from there? So, when you have a private plane when you're 19, like... <laughs> You get spoiled, and your paradigm changes, especially when you grew up poor. Like, I went from, you know, free and reduced lunch two years before yeah. to I'm flying around, you know, in this private plane. And I called my mom, and I was like, Mom, I really need to drop out of college. And she's like, Joe, you got to get your degree. She just doesn't sound like that. That's the way I heard it. You got to get your degree. You know, you got to have a degree. You got to at least have an undergrad degree. I was like, Mom, like, I don't want the university to take credit for all the things I'm going to build. Like, it's nothing to do with them. Really? That I have this gifting, and you guys raised me this way. And she's like, no, you got to get your degree. You can't drop out. Like, Mom, I'm making probably five times more than my family has ever made in my lifetime. Yeah. When I'm 19 years old. Yeah. And she's like, no, you got to get your degree. You got to finish your degree. Like, Mom, I'm calling you from our private plane. She's like, so? (laughs) I was like, I'm able to call you because it's our private plane. Like, she's yeah. like, a lot of people have planes. You know, <laughs> she, was, 
<laughs> she just was not going to let me drop out of college. And so I, she didn't let me drop out. I couldn't yeah. drop out. So I had to, I was literally at the office every morning around 5.30 a.m. And I would get, you know, two, three hours of work in. I'd meet my team when they came in. And then I would, you know, drive 100 miles per hour back into class to make a 9 a.m. class. And then I would, and so I was literally working five to nine, you know, during that age, that, All that with a headache, season of my life. The constant headache that yeah, you with, described earlier. So the kind of the therapy we found at the Mayo Clinic was literally Botox injections into the lining of my brain and the back of my neck just to kind of shut off the... Really? So I had to drive, you know, three hours each way to the Mayo Clinic oh my every gosh. couple months to get the, the Botox injections. And that helps that's, to clear I mean, it look out. Look at my face. <laughs> the back of my head is like baby butt smooth. Just, I'll show you later. It's awesome. Botox works. So how long were you there with that company? Most of that breakthrough happened in the first nine months where we really kind of just changed, you know, the way we looked at things. We had internal engineering and construction teams. And so, I was, you know, we were able to redraw everything and redo the way we were doing all the permits. And then what happened was I was, because of that financial freedom that came along with that project, my Hannah, my now wife, had just done the Acorn prostitution videos, undercover videos that had collapsed that organization nationally. And so I felt that pull back towards, you know, journalism and politics. And so... We you know, went on the road to help those teams. Um, How, how'd you meet your wife? So the first time I met Hannah in person, so we connected digitally through a rather small network of kind of center-right folks that were trying to do the journalism thing in college. And we met the first time in person in Boston. It was the Scott Brown special election when Senator Ted Kennedy passed away. It was the, that replacement election. So it was the night of that. It was literally at Scott Brown's victory party, the night of the election, when we first met personally. And she had done the acorn thing already. And so she was kind of belle of the ball, you know, yeah. hot young thing, you know, all over TV. There was like a 10,000-member fan club just for her ass on Facebook. You can edit that. <laughs> it was literally, you know, Hannah Giles has a... <laughs> and the you know South Park episodes, Daily Show, and I was just tired because I had taken the red eye and then worked all day, and then that was at night, and so she came up all excited to meet me apparently, and I was like, oh hi, you know like looked down at her and like walked away, and she was just mortally offended, like really offended that I had treated her like that when everyone else was treating her nice. I, I was just tired, like I wasn't yeah. trying to be mean. I just happened to be mean, and then I flew to New Orleans. I think the day after that, and we were doing some random acts of journalism down there, and I got arrested in the federal building in New Orleans for, we were doing some undercover work with some of the fraud down there and federal program fraud, and it was just a joke video that we were working on at the senator's office that the joke video was being filmed in, happened to be in the federal building, and somebody pushed one of those little red buttons on the underside of the desk that you don't want someone to push when you're in a federal building. And we got arrested, spent the night in federal prison. And because Hannah and some of her colleagues had just done the ACORN videos that kind of embarrassed the previous administration, they were really excited to have us in federal custody, even though we didn't do anything wrong. And we hadn't broken any laws. But they were going to take 24 hours and find out if we had broken any laws. 
So I literally saw into the next room when they were questioning me, and there was all these clerks like going through you know federal law books, like trying to find some law that we had broken. That's a fascinating experience, and definitely showed me you know the criminal justice system is broken. Like if someone doesn't like you, that's in power in that system. It's like, just a matter of finding the right. It's a matter of just finding the right thing that they can try and pin on you. If they're coming for you, there's. You're yeah. screwed. And if you were poor or didn't have contacts in media or in law, like, you're done. Yeah. Nothing you can do. And they literally, before they had charged us and before they thought they had let us call our attorneys, had sent press releases to the national media. What? And in one of the press releases, it literally said, in their possession were listening devices capable of receiving transmissions. And this is what they sent to the national media. Yeah. So in our pockets, we had listening devices capable of receiving transmissions. Yeah, we had cell phones. But that's what they sent out to the national media. So they were coming at us pretty hard. My two proudest moments were my mugshot was in the New York Times, on the cover, in color. What? Above the fold, on Sunday. That's how excited they were to hope to pin something on us. It was a proud moment. Rough for my parents, but proud moment. And then that precipitated a Playboy interview. And so those were things that were on my bucket list that I didn't even know were on my bucket list. <laughs> it was a fascinating period of time. So how'd you get out of that? Um, how did that resolve? We, we didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So we ended up pleading to a Class B misdemeanor of entry under false pretenses. And so it was just kind of fascinating to me. I was like, every single politician does that every single day <laughs> they go into the office. Like... That's all they got is false pretenses. Like, if that's illegal, there's a lot of other people that are going to be hurting. And they'd only use that statute for basically for people that have been dishonorably discharged that were tried to get back on base with their military ID. Yeah. It was the only time it had ever been used. Yeah. But it was, it's one of those things where when you're that age and you're facing federal you know, trial, yeah. federal everything else, a plea deal for misdemeanors is kind of a sweet deal to... And a great way to save 500 grand. All right. So you kind of teased it a little bit. We talked about it before the recording. But for people that don't know what your fiance, wife, before you two had met, what she had done, why don't you kind of talk through and tell that story? Because it's, it's a very freaking cool story. Yeah, she doesn't smoke, so she won't come on to tell this story. But her testimony around that project is fascinating. She was in D.C. for an internship, hated it. You know, hated the city, hated the system, hated, you know, what was happening to people in that system. Tried to go to this church that her father had recommended to her, and the church wasn't there. They had just lost their lease, like, the week before. And, you know, and that really struck her, like, I hate this city. I can't even go to the church I'm trying to go to. And so she was walking back to her apartment, kind of walking in front of the Supreme Court building there behind the Capitol. And she was calling out to God, like, why am I here? Like, this can't be what you want. And she just felt, she just heard the Lord say, if I didn't want you here, I wouldn't have you here. And you just need to enjoy yourself while I have you here. And then she went on a jog down into southeast D.C. and was struck when she kind of went into a much rougher part of the neighborhood, daytime prostitution, kids lining up to buy drugs, you know, crackheads laying across the sidewalk. You know, just a really sad situation in Southeast D.C. 11 years ago. And she was struck by this really ugly brick building that was 
painted bright blue right by the Marine barracks and the Navy Yard there in Southeast D.C. And she was struck by the Lord saying, if the church was here, none of this would be happening. You know, all this depravity, all this brokenness, all this generational poverty, generational curses that were, you know, chewing up and spitting out entire generations of this community in Southeast D.C. If the church was here, none of this would be happening. And then she turned around to jog back to her apartment, and the entire Acorn Prostitution Project, you know, was downloaded to her that she was supposed to pose as a prostitute, go into Acorn, ask for a subprime mortgage, say you're going to run a brothel, you're trafficking in underage girls from El Salvador, as young as 13. That all got downloaded to her, and that's what she felt the burden to do, and she did it. And every office she went into nationally, you know, bent over backwards to help facilitate underage sex slavery and tax fraud, mortgage fraud, bank fraud, and there was a video camera running unbeknownst to those very effective clerks that were helping her commit all those federal felonies. And, um, you know, and they slowly released those videos and the national media and the national political world kind of folded in on itself. They tried to ignore it. South Park and The Daily Show did episodes basically before you know, CNN and NBC, CBS were kind of forced to cover it. And the Daily Show segment was literally Jon Stewart making fun of CNN, you know, that two kids had scooped them on this story, and they kind of shamed them into covering it. And then with the South Park episode, it's, it's the Butters Kissing Company episode, if any of you are willing to admit that you partake in South Park. But it's when she went back to Miami, and she's a surfer, she's out surfing with all her surfer friends, and everything that that entails. And she explained, they were like, where have you been? She explains the project, what she had been doing. And they're like, oh, like you watched the South Park episode and you were inspired to go <laughs> do that project. She's like, no, like South Park was inspired from my project. They're like, whoa. So she was a celebrity with her stoner surfer friends back in Miami because South Park was inspired. So Fox News kind of ran with it just because enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they felt like it was a kind of a political attack, you know, on President Obama at the time. And, you know, she saw it more of a bondage-breaking, you know, entire communities are controlled by certain power elements and bad things are happening. A lot of souls are being lost and a lot of lives are being ruined and lost by some of that power structure. But it got turned into, you know, as everything does, literally every single thing does into a fake left-right paradigm thing. It kind of went that direction. And I believe Fox News had never had ratings that high before or since, basically, because they were the only ones covering it for the first week or so. And and then the the other fascinating thing, first night in Manhattan, she's doing the interviews, and she had never worn makeup before. She's a surf bum, jiu-jitsu, Miami, sweating all the time. And she didn't know how to take off the makeup when she got back to the hotel. So it was, a, it was a shift for her. So how did you two then shift between you kind of blowing her off the first time that you met her to a relationship starting? And So we met at that out in Boston, and I got arrested two days later. Yeah. And it was a crap show, I'll say, obviously. And if your mugshot's on the New York Times cover. And I called her to apologize to say, I'm sorry if us getting into this mess hurts anything that you were working on. Yeah. And she just took that as like, wow, like he's, 
you know, that cognizant of, you know, second and third order consequences. Yeah. Just call me like that. It's a new acquaintance. And then we worked on a couple journalism projects together. And I think we had both kind of, and I'll speak for myself, but I'd kind of given up marrying a normal church girl because it didn't feel fair to sign someone up for the lifestyle that I was going in, both in business and journalism, politics. And I think we both kind of had come to that realization that it might not be fair to marry a conventional spouse. And then we found each other. And so we met January of 10 and we were married December 5th of 10. So we were engaged for three months and married three months later. Dated for three months, engaged for three months. Now, you said your parents weren't happy about the mugshot and what was going on. Yeah, mid- Midwest parents don't take kindly to that stuff. I guess parents anywhere don't take kindly to that stuff. But it was, it was a shock. And they were getting the calls from the media, right? And, they were, you know, and, their, and their church body was getting the calls and the seminary was getting the calls. It was a bad deal. And, you know, normal people are not media trained. <laughs> So they, you know, they're just answering questions truthfully or yeah. speaking their mind, and then that gets manipulated in the press. And it was my dad and one of the senators that I got elected really threw me under the bus. You know, they were literally like, "Well, if he did the crime, then he's got to do the time." And I was like, "Dad, why would you say that to to the New York Times?" And obviously, they're going to print it because that's basically admitting that you're guilty when your dad says that. But that, you know, yeah, you just didn't know you're not supposed to play into their traps. So where'd you guys go after? So we moved. She was living in Miami, grew up in Miami. You said she was born and raised in a Christian home. Her dad was very politically Politically active. involved, but also planted a church. So she was born in Miami. Her parents went to Texas Tech University and met there and were married. And my father-in-law was radically saved, you know, from drug dealer. Really? To on fire. You know, they're going to you know, heavy metal concerts to witness to people and clubs at night to witness to people. And, you know, he was just not a church, like didn't even go to funerals and weddings and churches type upbringing yeah. and just got radically saved. And, and I'll let him tell you that story. But they planted a church in Miami when Hannah was five or six years old. So she grew up in Miami since then. And we got married December 5th, 2010 and moved to Austin that week. She had been there once. I had been there twice. And for whatever reason, you know, we felt called there, specifically to Texas. And then Austin's the only cool city, so you have to move to Austin. <laughs> and what were you doing there in Austin? Journalism. The two of you. So, yeah, so we had started a nonprofit foundation to do journalism, to train journalists and to do other journalism projects, the American Phoenix Foundation. And that was our main projects. And then in 2012, I think she was speaking at the Broadmoor at some event. And we met some of your wealthy neighbors here, and they wanted to support some of our projects. And we did some fascinating journalism work here, undercover, long-term journalism work here. Ended up leading me back into politics, basically. And I was asked to stand up political operation. And we did the Doug Coe and the Jeff Coe school board races in 2013 were kind of our, my first foray back into politics. And yeah. we ran slates of reform-minded school board candidates and we won everything and like in Jeffco not a single one of the candidates thought we could win not a single one of the donors thought we could win and we won 
all of them, and it was a majority year, so we seized control of that government, billion dollar a year, almost, school district, for 70 grand, when nobody thought we could win. And that kind of set me back towards a political stance, and we, we built that company up. Nationally, we had about 500 employees in 2015 at the political firm. Yeah. And we were, you know, we were just deploying what we had learned, mostly from my colleagues, friends on the left, and their effective campaigning. And we went around just only working for underdogs and winning everything we touched. Uh, a lot of state senate races in Texas, house races in Texas, statewide in Nevada, you know, Minnesota, Colorado, all over the country. And it was a lot of fun, but you quickly realize that electing a different person doesn't fix systemics. It doesn't mm-hmm. fix human nature magically. Mm-hmm. You know, one of your Bible study guys is a senator. You know, I figure you have two weeks to three months before that system chews them up and spits them out and corrupts them. And, you know, I'm friends with most of those clients still, but it really made us incredibly cynical, you know, and worried about, is this a real way to change anything if we win all these elections and nothing changes? And so we kind of backed away from that industry in 2015. And that was when our son was born, Hamish. And Daphne followed up two years later. Those are our two children. And we bought a 100-acre farm in Austin, Texas, and went to be hipster farmers (laughs) in Texas. (laughs) So you have the farm. Is that the only thing you're doing? Are you... Basically, you know, we felt, you know, so cynical about the politics and, by extension... A lot of the journalism stuff and so you know we still had some clients here and there but we we were farming yeah and for two years and it what was were you farming so we did the world's best certainly central texas's best pasture raised livestock so we, we had grass-fed beef that was actually good and grass finished so never grain daily rotational grazing and then we did pasture raised pork with heritage breed pigs. We did about a thousand meat chickens at a time, pasture raised chickens. We had a pretty big egg operation, wholesale and retail egg, egg operation. And then we'd do turkeys for Thanksgiving too. That's kind of a big shift. I mean, obviously, you grew up farming. Your dad was a farmer before he became a pastor. And so you were kind of familiar with that. But to 2010, 2009, 2010, not a lot of people are doing grass-finished beef. Yeah, I think, again, it was kind of this impossible thing. And the impossible thing to me was, A, farming being profitable, you know, because the overarching narrative is farming can't be profitable in this country in a modern context. And then sustainable, you know, healthy food at small scale can be profitable. And we were really large scale for, you know, kind of local farm scale. Yeah. But we were really small compared to the dairies I'd worked with. Yeah. And when I'd run those dairies, one of the things that I'd analyzed is they were maximizing profit per management, is the way I'll say it. Is the way I said it in public. But in private to shareholders and stuff, I would say profit per white guy. Which, you know, if that's what you're trying to do, like if that's the purpose of your business, then you're doing it well. But what you're not doing is maximizing profit per cow or profit per acre, or you know, profit per labor hour, or profit per dollar of capital deployed, you're maximizing profit per management. And that's what most people do probably in conventional business. 
But it bugged me that I felt like I had come across models that were actually a lot more profitable per cow or per acre and people weren't really doing it, you know, in an entrepreneurial way. And so that just caused this intellectual honesty journey into that idea. And that leads you to uh, Joel Salatin, who's a, a farmer in Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, who kind of is the intellectual godfather of that kind of farming, that pasture-raised livestock farming. And I wanted to prove it to myself and needed a break. And what I tell people is if you're in politics, transitioning to walking around in manure is not that hard. <laughs> it's actually a lot thicker in politics and your boots have to be a lot taller and higher on your thigh in politics to walk through all the BS than to do pasture-raised livestock farming. So I'm sure there are people listening right now they are not familiar with really the health benefits of that kind of farming. So talk a little bit about that because it's something that as I have been listening to biohacker podcasts and health podcasts, that's something that I've really become familiar with and really tried to take my family's diet into more of a direction of more, you know, more vegetables, better beef, better meats that we're eating. And really, I mean, in the last year, I've really started to look at some ranchers around Colorado within a short driving, within a reasonable driving distance to get some good grass finished beef. Yeah, I think I won't make any health benefits that the FDA would get mad about me claiming, but the science is there and there's plenty of research and everyone should be looking into it because you're, you're all not supposed to die so young, but you're good Americans and you're doing it. But it's when the pursuit for me, for Hannah, it was definitely that, right? It was health. It was, you know, uh, animal welfare, you know, kind of all the, the hippy-dippy motivations that most folks in that business have. That was, I'll throw Hannah under the bus, and that was definitely her motivational structure. And mine was kind of this intellectual pursuit, that I, this intellectual honesty of can it be profitable? Mm-hmm. You know, does it work? Yeah. Because farming is not working in this country right now and in a bunch of other countries. And surely we can do better. Yeah. And I think that's true of every sector. I just, you know, I felt the pull to think about that in the agricultural sector. And, you, you know, you start breaking apart these systems and you realize that a creator God has a much better design for all of these systems than a lot of what we're doing. You know, if God thought the best way, you know, to make buffalo put on weight was to make them stand in two feet of their own manure in a communicable disease environment and force feed them grain that literally makes their bodies explode and they keel over and die, then he probably would have had a sample of that for us to look at and observe. For some reason, he didn't do that. For some reason, he designed those systems in the bovine system and what we use as uh, beef cattle today system of you know, their superpower is they take grass and they make steak. And that's the superpower. And to respect that and to honor that and to not be fighting nature every single day in your business, I think it's, it would behoove people, there's a, there's a pun in there, it would, be, <laughs> it would behoove farmers to try to pursue as closely as possible as the way God designed it. Yeah. And that looks a lot like large herds, thickly stocked, you know, think buffalo herds in the North American context, moving over the land, harvesting it tight, dropping down a really nice layer of manure, and moving on. 
and you know and from a soil perspective it's great for the soil it's huge huge to, for to, the soil to, all to get, all our good soils in north america were built by rotational grazing buffalo basically yeah and we've since made interesting decisions with soil quality i don't you know think there were evil intentions no. you know by my ancestors and generations of my family that farmed conventionally but with what we know now with the science of it and with our understanding of science and nature and creation we can do better and i think it's more profitable it's much healthier it's much healthier for the land and it's healthier for families and communities you know my 2-year-old son could be with me the entire time that i was working with those cattle and moving those cattle every morning yeah and it was kind of this amazing prayer and meditation time when you go out at 6:30 in the morning and you build a new paddock and you let the cattle in and it's quiet and the dew's on the grass and the sun's rising like that was what i was doing for work i wasn't sitting in traffic for 2 hours so i could go stare at the back side of a cubicle and hate my boss for 40 years i was literally with my 2-year-old son in creation making a ton of money and eating like a king and restoring land and every single day we farm like that that land was more productive more drought resistant more flood resistant more valuable more profitable every day we farm like that so why did you leave so for 2 years all our clients kind of left us alone it was kind of weird cuz you know we went from political you know, clients king, kind of kingmaker you know yeah. consultants to everybody leaves us alone for a couple years mostly and it was kind of weird but then all of a sudden we started getting these calls and this would have been in call it spring of 17 2017 we started getting these calls for people you know for us to come help whether it was in DC kind of the Trump chaos thing happened and there was you know what looks like chaos to people that like him or not looks like opportunity to me and we were getting calls to be involved in that project and a lot of other projects all interesting but we would just say no mm-hmm. right hanner my wife or i would get a call we say nope we're retired we're out yeah leave us alone we wouldn't tell each other we wouldn't ask each other we wouldn't pray about it like we were out of the game and the seriousness of who was calling and the frequency just increased exponentially, exponentially yeah. it, it increased and it was bizarre because you would think it would be opposite right you yeah. think everybody would be calling you as you retired and then they'd slowly forget about you and instead it was this violent increase in people calling us to come work on really cool exciting impactful things and we were just like you know we had enough PTSD from that world that we were like no 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 and then what felt like random things started going horribly wrong on the farm like my favorite pig sow female pig mama pig that was going to be the basis for all my genetics in the future literally died during childbirth and it was like that doesn't happen we've never had that happen yeah it's my favorite pig it's literally during childbirth meaning my entire plan for the future of our genetics were inside her when she died and yeah. died as well and that hit me hard and then there was a couple other things that happened that were that were really kind of traumatizing for Hannah and I and we're getting all these calls and it was finally to this point where like something's happening your head christian and hannah's praying for me and i'm also still a jerk is the way i'll say it for broadcast but it's worse than that and not a good husband 
I now realize, and that makes you not a good dad in some situations. And you know, my head was somewhere else and distracted and not pursuing, you know, God's plan for my life. Yeah. But we both kind of come to this something's going on and we have to be a lot more prayerful about whatever this is. Either one of us calls. Yeah, and the thing started going bad. It was the same time. And neither one of us knew what it was, but it was definitely it was definitely something. Yeah. And, you know, we my wife is a prayer warrior and you know, has really powerful dreams. Like but she was praying for me and September twenty seventh, seventeen, I believe. I can check my flight records to verify if somebody's mad about that. But September seventeen, we were going to this discipleship training at our church in Austin. And on the way there, for whatever reason, the conversation was, isn't it amazing? We were talking about the Gideon story. We're like, isn't it amazing that God is willing to work with dummies? You know, even when they're not listening or they're asking for supernatural proof or miracles or signs like Gideon did. And that was like our small talk. Yeah. Right? Like, because I'd always understood doctrinally you know, asking for like superstitious type signs and wonders was tempting God. Like, you know, I'm not sure how all you guys grew up, but you're not supposed to ask God to let you win the lottery or to, yeah. you know, make a tree change color as a sign. And so I just never really prayed that way. That was our small talk on the way to this discipleship training. And later in the night we break apart and I'm with my small men's group, like six or seven guys. And I had booked a flight uh, a couple of weeks before to come out to D.C. to talk to this one guy that was, you know, integral in, in the current administration, getting elected and working in the White House, and would kind of know where all the other pieces on the chessboard were. And I wanted to talk to him to decide if we weighed back into politics and public policy. And I booked this flight, I think, two or three weeks ahead of time because that's when Southwest flights are cheap, and been trying to get an appointment with this one guy and couldn't get an appointment. You know, he was, he was every other headline for a while there and busy guy, and the flight was the next day at noon out of Austin to D.C. Reagan. And so the night before, I'm having these guys pray, and we're going around getting prayer requests, and I was like, guys, I really need discernment on whether to get on this flight tomorrow because I don't have an appointment I only want to meet with this one guy before I start calling everybody else. And so they laid hands on me and they prayed for me. And, you know, we finished praying. I go downstairs at church and Hannah's like, Larry called and he said to get on the plane tomorrow. And I was like, when? And she's like, I don't know, like three, four minutes ago. It was literally while these guys had laid hands on me for discernment on whether to get on the plane. Yeah. That after three weeks of nothing, we get the phone call. Yes, get on the plane tomorrow. But I'm a head Christian, so coincidences are, you know, yeah. just coincidences. It's just a thing. It just yeah. happened to perfectly line up with when serious spiritual men were praying for me. And that's the way I kind of took it. But I was excited because I was going to get back in the saddle. I was going to get on that plane. Or I was going to, you know, pursue yeah. that question. And that night, I was putting my son to bed in his room. And I'd fallen asleep trying to put him to sleep. Yeah. Because I'm good at falling asleep and kids are not. <laughs> and the, he literally rolled off the bed, which he has never done, yeah. as far as I know, before or since, at f- like 4 a.m. on the dot. Not 3.59, not 4.01. Like when I looked at my phone, it's 4 a.m. 
And he woke me up out of this dream when he's screaming for some reason when he falls out of bed. <laughs> and I d- wasn't dreaming. I didn't have many dreams at the time. And the dream was kind of weird. And so I, I went and talked to my wife about it. And we prayed. But we had already decided I was getting on the plane tomorrow because of the phone call. And so there was a couple like weird details in the dream that were strong memories from the dream. And I literally Googled some of the things in the dream. Yeah. Because there were things that I would have no reason yeah. to know or yeah. have looked up before. And they were like the first image on Google Images was like the thing in my dream. And I won't say all the names and stuff. But it was like I was convulsing, crying. Like I had, you know, shaking. But excite like that God had done that. Spoken to you to through me. the dream. And I'd never had that. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And it was joy. Like I was excited, but I was literally having this biological response to the realization that God had sent me a dream like that. Yeah. And uh, now, did that dream confirm going to DC? Did yeah. it, did it warn you? Okay. Confirm. And yeah, well, that's an offline dream conversation, but it was awesome. And so I'm going to the plane at noon. You know, it feels like my feet aren't even touching the ground because, you know, yeah. that, that thing had happened to me. Yeah. But I had not been flying for two years, so I don't have status, and I'm on Southwest. Yeah. So I'm like C-500, <laughs> you know, on a full <laughs> flight. <laughs> and so middle seat in the back, you know, I'm fat for the viewers at home. And so you're, you're in middle fat. seat. You're a big guy. I'm fat. Big bone? You're, you're, you're a big dude. You're a big it's, dude. You're, it's, you're not. it's this belly bone. That's, it's not. There's no bones there. Uh, that's fat. But it's, I'll blame it on the meningitis stuff. But the freshman 15 was the freshman 30 for me. And so, but I'm kind of excited, you know, yeah. because of everything. So who cares? I'm in a middle seat. And about halfway through the flight, the guy in the window seat had kind of stood up to talk to a guy in the row behind us. And he had mentioned a couple names of Christian businessmen that I knew in that conversation that I'm eavesdropping on. And so he sits back down and I'm like, oh, how do you know these guys? And we start talking. And he was a Harvard you know, tech investor, very successful venture capital guy in Silicon Valley, but was struggling, had just sold a company and was struggling with what he was supposed to do. Yeah. And God was messing with him too. Yeah. And that was my seatmate. And then we did some investment work and, you know, kingdom stuff together and, and still a friend of mine. And then the guy that he had talked to behind us is a guy that is one of the founders of a company that's doing 3D printing of homes okay. you know, that we've all kind of seen yeah. in viral media. And I got to meet him as we got off the flight as well. But then, so it's 4 p.m. in D.C., and so it's 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. I get a call that I can't meet with that guy. He's not getting back to D.C. until Saturday night. And I was like, I literally flew here just to meet with this yeah. guy. And the secretary was like, you know, when do you fly out? And I was like, right now I have a flight on Monday at 5. And she's like, okay, okay, we'll get you in Sunday or Monday. And so I'm sitting there, you know, literally having just talked to my wife about not talking to all of our other friends in D.C., that we were thinking about getting back in and only talking to this one guy and then yeah. making decisions based on that. And I don't get to meet with him. So I have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday before, at least before yeah. this meeting happens. And so 
you know, what do you do in that situation when God's speaking to you and messing with you for the first time in your life? You go to Shelly's cigar bar. <laughs> and so I go to Shelly's cigar bar. It was, you know, probably 4.30 by the time I took the, what, the blue line into the city from the airport. And I walk into Shelly's, and the first guy I make eye contact with is a family friend that runs a senator's office in D.C. now who was on the list of people we were not going to tell that yeah. I was in D.C. Yeah. Like pretty high on that list, actually. And <laughs> love him, family friend, for different reasons. We weren't going to talk to him yet. And he's like, Joe, what are you doing here? you got to have dinner with us. I was like, uh, like, you're literally on the list of people I wasn't supposed to <laughs> talk to when I was in D.C. So I go over, and I sit next to him, and he's having uh, dinner with this other consultant that I had never met. And introduces himself. Third guy to walk over is Dave Bratt, who's a congressman who's since lost his election. But we had helped him on his election beat Eric Cantor, who is the majority leader for the Republicans, yeah. in a primary challenge. But I'd never met him. So he's the third guy to walk over. And then the fourth guy was this really serious Christian from Minnesota, political guy. And, you know, I just think it's, you know, Shelley's, it's coincidences and stuff. <laughs> and I go back to the hotel that night and I call my wife and I tell her and I'm like literally reading the business card like hey you know our buddy was there yeah. you know and I had dinner with these guys and she was silent on the other end of the phone and she's like Joe do you know who Brian was that second guy that he was having dinner with and I was like no like some douchebag consultant like me I don't know we're all the same and um, <laughs> she's like he was literally my guardian angel when I was a intern in Washington, D.C. He was the captain of her congressional softball team and, you know, would basically tell the other staffers and the congressmen, like, she's off limits. You don't get to sleep with her. Like, yeah, leave her alone. And she had never said, A, yeah. that he existed. She never said his name. She never said she had some guy looking out for her yeah. in D.C. And when I don't have an appointment, I'm literally having dinner with her guardian angel. And that's all in 24 hours. From the prayer at church, to the dream, there. to the guys in the flint plane, to literally having dinner with my wife's guardian angel that I knew nothing about. Yeah. That was the first 24 hours of, I say the Holy Spirit messing with me, but realizing that I, I need to walk closer with the Lord and walk into this. So what were those first steps of you starting to walk closer? I just wanted more of that. I just wanted those, the dopamine hits from <laughs> knowing that God is real and he's with us and he wants more for us than we're choosing in our lives usually. And so I was like, I'm ready to like go around and Chance and I have talked, joked about this, but literally like go around like ding, 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 you know, like yeah. zap, zapping people with the Holy Spirit because it's awesome. Yeah. And it was working. <laughs> and so I was literally like, I need to go around and pray for homeless guys, homeless people in D.C. Like, you know, if I got this whole Holy Spirit zap gun, like, <laughs> I need to go talk to homeless people. It's not like I'm going to sleep. Like, this is, yeah. this is amazing, everything that's going on. And so I go out hunting for homeless people to pray for, which I'd never really done. Yeah. Mostly just because you grow up in the Midwest and it's too cold and there aren't a bunch of homeless people to hang now, out with. Now, did your wife grow up in that kind of a culture? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. But I had not. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm like hunting hobos to pray for. And I say that they're my dear friends and I work closely with them now. But I'm just excited to pray for these yeah. guys. Especially yeah. the outcast, you know, the downtrodden. Like, 
I want to do this thing. And so I'm walking around the city in prayer, and I'm praying the Lord's Prayer when I can't think of anything smart to pray. And I'm reciting the Lord's Prayer for the 50 millionth time, and all of a sudden it means something. Like Ooh. each, you know, each phrase yeah. is like heavy, meaningful, life-changing. Yeah. You know, power. Every single part of the Lord's Prayer. And I encourage everyone to pray it that way and to read it that way. So I see a homeless guy and I'll make eye contact. You know, white guy by himself, little chubby, non-offensive. Like, I'm the guy that you would hit up for a buck, especially by making eye contact and like... Yeah. You know, not in a hurry. And I'm excited for them to hit me up. And then I get to sit down and, you know, take them to a 24-hour diner. You know, give them my hotel room or, you know, at least let them shower. So, you know, I was like that, jacked up to do whatever I could. And none of them would hit me up. Huh. And it was weird. Because, I mean, a lot of them are hitting you up, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're walking yeah. by. Like, yeah. you know, like the Pharisee in the parable. And... They wouldn't hit me up when I was trying to, like, dude, talk to me. Like, I'm giving you, you know, a hotel room. Like, I'm going to buy you dinner. I'm going to pray for you. And it'll probably work because the last 24 hours have been crazy. And none of them would hit me up. And they would smile. They would make eye contact and they would smile. But they wouldn't engage you. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't engage me. And so I I was like, okay, that's weird. You know, it's 2 a.m. on the streets of D.C. And... I'm making eye contact, smiling with these guys, and they, they won't engage. And so I, you know, skip a couple steps, but then you keep walking. Because, yeah. you know, I feel bad overbearing on them if they're not engaging. A couple times, it literally felt like I had been physically punched in the stomach as hard as possible. Like mm. Harder than I've ever been punched in the stomach as I would walk past the homeless individuals. And there were a couple times where it was so intense spiritually like electricity intense spiritually that I would literally look back to see if they were still there or not Mm -hmm. and my gut feeling was are these literally just angels that are put here for us to do the right thing but also to get our heart right Mm -hmm. and to you know to show us uh, and to prod us onto being the hands and feet of Christ and emulating what Christ taught us to do and it was like that for like three nights basically and it was, it was hardcore. Yeah. Like literally felt it physically punched in my stomach as I would go by. That's a pretty big paradigm shift to go from head Christian, grew up Lutheran pastors, kid. You mentioned, you know, Bible quiz champion and, you know, doing well in that. And it was a little bit of a change. Yeah. And it's amazing. And it unleashes a lot of stuff. And I would read scripture and you know, I'd probably read it 10,000 times and memorized it 500 times. And it was like I'd never read it before because it would be so real and so alive and so powerful. Just little, you know, little details or little like yeah. what you think are side notes yeah. in Christ's teachings change everything when it's real and when God's real and when he's working still in the world. And I got put through the ringer pretty hard. It was awesome. So no one actually during those days hit you up? Not really. I, okay. I handed out some cash, but it was a different lesson. So what was the rest of that trip like? Did you end up meeting? and? So Sunday I don't even go to church because I, I want to be close to this office if I get the call to go in yeah. for the meeting. Because you know, she said Sunday or Monday. And I'm prayer walking 
for the first time in my life, probably yeah. those four or five days. And praying for breakthrough and, yeah. you know, imprecatory psalms, things like that, hardcore stuff. And my wife's teaching me all this, you know, yeah. in overly excited phone conversations <laughs> and text messages. And you guys had been married how long at the time? <clears throat> six, six years. Okay. Something like that. Okay. How old are you at the time? Third, 29. Okay. 30. Okay. And um, that age is just a societal construct, so I don't have to remember all that. And it, it just, we, so I, Sunday passes, nothing. Monday morning, so at like 10 a.m., I was prayer walking the neighborhood around his house and office. Yeah. But like, like staying a block away, right? Like yeah. not creeping on his side of the street type thing. Yeah. And then it's like 11 a.m., I had a 5 p.m. flight out of Reagan. 11 rolls around, I was like, okay, this is BS. Like, I've got to go for it. I'm going to walk up to the house. And so I walk up to the house, and I'm like, hey, is Alex working? Who is the, the staffer that was arranging it? And there was a security guy on the front step, and he's like, no. And he, like, grabs me by the lapels to throw me off the property. It wasn't Secret Service. It was like a private security yeah. situation. And as he grabs me, the third floor balcony door opens up, and it's the guy I was trying to meet with. Yeah. And his security guard was literally like yeah. hanging on to my lapels, throwing me off the property. I was like, "Hey!" He's like, "Joe, what are you doing here? How's my girl?" You know, asking about Hannah. Yeah. I gotta go shave and do the CBS interview, but come back to the house at one thirty. We gotta talk. We gotta catch up. And I was like, "Okay." You know, the security guy's like fixing my lapels and, you know, putting me into the schedule. And I walk away. I was like, okay, we're good to go. I come back at 1.30, you know, sit in the basement kind of with the staff waiting to go yeah. upstairs and meet with them. And a bunch of really interesting other God stories type people cycle through the basement. And I get to yeah. spend time with them and yeah. catch up. And governors and, you know, guys who are now prime ministers of... Eastern European countries now, but we're not at the time we were praying yeah. in the basement, like things like that. Pretty cool. And, That's awesome. Especially in hindsight. And it's like 3.30 and I still you, haven't, still you haven't got, gone upstairs. You got to catch your flight. I, and so I'm like watching Uber, like, you know, I need 11 minutes of transit time to get to Reagan to try to get through security and get on this flight at five o'clock. And I'm like, oh, like I literally am going to have to walk out of here and call an Uber and, yeah. and go home. And finally I go upstairs and I lay out, I had like two pages of notes. The first half was, and the auspices of the meeting was kind of a political conversation. Yeah. And the first page of notes was basically if the church was firing on all eight cylinders, then 90% of this political stuff would just happen. Like the culture war stuff, you know, the education, the health of the family, the health of communities, crime. Like if the church was walking in its birthright, we wouldn't have to do all this political stuff. And this is some of the systemic stuff that you were talking about, being in the political realm, you know, saying that I can't change culture here. That was kind of where you landed? Yeah, I mean, the auspice of the meeting was taking over the United States Congress and Senate. Yeah. But I opened with, if the church was real, if the church was walking... Doing their job in healing families, affecting then, the neighborhoods. A lot and, of this stuff would just kind of happen. Yeah. Because, you know, I think politics is downstream of culture and culture's downstream of whatever we're doing in the church. 
and uh, Good C Church. Yeah. Is that big? That's small C or big C? I don't know. Which one's which? And we had a really good conversation about it. And he's like, that your plan is the plan. Like, that's what we have to do. Yeah. And this is a guy that, you know, half the world was looking to for strategic thinking. And it, he literally took my, you know, handwritten notes in my journal about the church firing on all eight cylinders. And that that's what we should actually be working on if we want these political outcomes that we think are godly. Yeah. And it was, and I ran and got on my plane and flew home. It's awesome. That was, the, that was the first week yeah. of the Holy Spirit messing with me. So how long before you guys sold your place in Austin <clears throat> and moved to D.C.? Because you've been there now for, what, two years, you said? About six months. Oh, six months. So it was kind of a, what would that be, almost a two-year ordeal. Yeah. And it was literally to the point where we, we thought we were going to face a Jonah moment. And if we ignored what the Lord was trying to tell us to do, neither of us are D.C. people. We both always hated D.C. and everything it stood for. And so it was an ordeal. And obviously, you know, God was working on me a lot. Yeah. You know, had some serious deliverance. This one church meeting, pastor was praying for me. And it was literally felt like my abs were plugged into an electrical outlet. Yeah. Like I should be buckled over or on the ground in the fetal position. That's how much it hurt. Yeah. Physically hurt. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to. I'm going to crap my pants after this. Like that, that's yeah. what it, like it hurt really bad. And, and after that, I, I'm driving home from that and I call my dad, pastor dad. I was like, dad, I think I had my first Pentecostally thing happen. You know, I was trying to like make light. Like I don't, you know, I don't yeah. want to offend him. Yeah. You know, in his faith tradition and training and raising yeah. of me as a Lutheran. But so I kind of make light of it, but want to tell him the story because he's my dad. And then he starts telling me things that had happened in his life that I've never known about. Yeah. And there were things like, probably should have told your stupid teenage son, you know, these God stories (laughs) a long time ago. Yeah. But it was a really special moment to talk to him about some of that stuff. That's cool. So from what Kay and Steve have told me, you have your hands in a bunch of different stuff. Obviously, you got safari cigars. How'd that start? Well, in a medical context, it's called ADD or ADHD. (laughs) But I made it out of school alive. They never drugged me for it, as far as I know. And I've told a couple of these stories because my gift and the way the Lord arranged my brain is systemic disruption, I guess, is what I do. That's the work product that my consulting would be or what we do in these different businesses. And what it comes from is just that intellectual honesty thing that always bugged me through school, that made me do all those things in college, that made me change politics in certain states, that made our family do change journalism in this country, that made me pursue changing the food system systemically. And what I basically end up doing naturally is I look at a system and all the assumptions that it's built on. Yeah. And we kind of all accept a ton of assumptions, you know, in, in the cultural narrative, that's just the way it is. You know, churches can't do things. You know, the Lord isn't moving anymore. So, you know, just get together on Sundays and that's the thing. Or that's the way we do dairy business in North America now. That's the way we lose every single election because we're stupid Republicans. You know, there's a ton of assumptions built into all that. 
and I would just question them all. Yeah. And I would tear them apart to their constituent parts and molecular level, try to reassemble them. And if they're true, then that's good, right? You know, I think of things like winemaking, right? Like if I tried to do that to winemaking, I'd probably, you know, take the long way around and a bunch of cool, you know, chemistry and science and stuff, but it would probably look a lot like fine winemaking looks, right? Yeah. Because that's pretty darn good. So I think some people figured that out over the years. But in all these other systems and sectors, there's just glaring untruths built into these assumptions that we all just accept yeah. in our lives or in our industry or in our communities. And so when you're willing to break it apart and be honest with yourself and, and rebuild it, you get a lot of breakthrough. From what John told me, you're involved right now here locally with developing a community, a tiny home community, if it were correct. So, and that passion came out of, you know, homeless and... So we were tendentially involved in this community in Austin called Community First Village. Go ahead and stop listening, Google that, and watch a couple of those videos. We were their bacon farmer. It was another God story. I'd literally typed this message to the founder to donate eggs from our farm to this tiny home village of 250 homes for chronically homeless individuals in Austin, Texas. Yeah you know, little cabin resort and campers and stuff. And I literally deleted, I was smoking a cigar in my special office designed for cigar smoking at the farm. And I literally deleted the message because I was like, I don't want to bother Alan, the founder of this village with this donation because this dude's saving lives yeah. on like an hourly basis yeah, and transforming families and healing generational bondages. Like, I don't want to bother him to give him eggs. Yeah. So I literally deleted the message that night. It was late at night. And the next morning, one of the staff from that village called the farm trying to find local raised, pasture raised bacon. Yeah. For their bed and breakfast program. Yeah. And I was like, well, we'll donate it. Like, I was literally trying to donate last night. Like, you don't have to believe me, but I was, I want to donate this bacon. He's like, no, 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 you can give us a discount, but we want to pay for it. We want to. Yeah. support you and what you're doing at the farm. And so that kind of started a relationship. And he was the first guy to move out to the village. And he started the farm program at the village. And so that really kind of pulled us into that. And then as the Lord was messing with me, and I'm trying to redeem, you know, these stories we just talked about, especially the political story, like I struggled with how to redeem that because politics is horrible yeah. and nasty, but I was good at it. And what I kind of came to was this concept of city transformation. And so I started calling, you know, clients and friends in different cities and, you know, people that had foundations and larger philanthropists and stuff. And I would just go to their city I'd pray, walk around, and I would kind of type up like the 20 things the church should do in Seattle or in Denver to transform that city. And inevitably, replicate community first like we have in Austin was one of the things that everybody would latch onto in every major city in America because this homelessness crisis and the more broadly the affordability crisis is so in everybody's face if you live in any major city in America and even a lot of the smaller cities now. Yeah. And so inevitably they'd be like, yeah, yeah, we'll do widows and orphans and all that other stuff you said, but this tiny home village, let's talk about that. That's cool. That's exciting. And so it got to the point where they would just be like, hey, can you just do it? Or can we hire you to teach us to do it? Yeah. And that became this thing where 
that'll probably be 80% of my time this year is working on that. And the main reason we moved to DC was to advocate for and advise, you know, eight good different federal agencies and yeah. the White House and Congress on this concept of we can build, and specifically the church, but we can also build it other ways and allow the church to catch up with the move of God later. We can build affordable housing for a tenth of the price of what you know we're currently building in California and about a sixth of the price of the current quote-unquote affordable housing developments in places like Colorado Springs that has better outcomes. And we're talking health-wise, right? Addiction recovery, yeah. mental illness, uh, episodic mental illness being under control, you know, healing relationships, things like that. So yeah. for a tenth of the price with better outcomes and the community gets to do it, right? Yeah. You get to engage the community rather than, you know, some commercial developer building a high-rise building and we stick all the poor people in it and we pay their rent and we hide the hobo, which is literally their policy currently at the national level, the church can be the hands and feet of Christ and we can solve this crisis. Yeah. You know, that's a bold but paradigm-changing vision. Yeah. And it's, nobody's really done it. You know, Alan Graham, the founder of the community in Austin, is kind of the, the only guy that's done it at scale. There's been some great bright spots around the world and around the country of this concept working. And so I'm, that's 80% of our time right now is helping communities and governments either change their policy or support building these villages. Now I would assume because of your history that you experienced some pushback in that area from some local and even states, probably even national people yeah, that are, because of your name, there's a baggage that comes with it. And so they don't want you to get that kind of publicity or credit or yeah a lot of it's just the you know what's happening to our whole society which is this political tribalism you know it's there's only two sides to any issue and i'm going to be on the opposite side no matter what just as a reaction to my perceived political opponent which is the way we're looking at each other right now in this country so because of you know what my wife did and some of my political work we get pushback from my friends on the American left or the Democrats that don't mm. friends yet. Yeah. Um, I like that. And make yes. assumptions. I, li I like that. Yet. Uh, and kind of push back. But anybody that is willing to sit down over a cigar, especially, but <laughs> alcohol and food tend to work in the same vein. If someone hasn't been released from their earthly bonds and started enjoying cigars yet. But when you sit down <laughs> and you talk about it, People want vision like this. They want solutions like this. They want to be better, do better. They know. I think people know down in their gut that we can do better, especially in this country. Yeah. Especially on the homelessness issue. But they perish for lack of vision. Yeah. You know, is the biblical way yeah. to explain it. There's not something for them to grab onto. There's not something for their church to support that is some kind of no-brainer and this changes everything. And I really think these tiny home villages as permanent supportive housing, which is what the government calls it, when there's housing, stable housing, without precondition, and with services. Yeah. So where you just decide as a community, we're going to love this person through their crap no matter what. Yeah. And when you make a commitment to love someone through their crap no matter what, yeah. it's always going to be less than that. Because just you deciding to love someone 
changes everything. Yeah. And you doing that when you're not supposed to or when no one else has for decades in some cases in their lives, when their own family, you know, has left them, that changes everything. And a lot of times the most important thing you can do is sit down on that curb and sit there and listen yeah. for an hour or two. And especially over a meal or over a cigar, I try not to push my vices, but definitely offer my vices yeah. to, to, for sharing as much as possible, but it changes everything. And I think the way we design these villages and the way we design community engagement, it allows, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of members in that community to be a part of a real, you know, tactile touch feel, be a part of the solution thing that no matter where you're at, right? If you're scared to shake somebody's hand, you know, because they're living on the streets currently, you can pick weeds in the garden, right? You can do a Costco run for us. Yeah. But we intentionally design that into the process so that there's a thousand little on-ramps into this lifetime of service. My favorite part is it ends up being the volunteers that get changed the most. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My buddy who's been in the woods for 20 years just couldn't afford an apartment with his VA disability check. So, you know, we got him a house and the rent's only 350 Now his $900 VA disability check or $1,100 VA disability check works. Yeah. Where if the cheapest apartment in town is 1000 bucks, yeah. and you got meds and food, you don't have an apartment. Yeah. And where if rent's 350 bucks, like it is a designed to be in our villages, including all utilities, all of a sudden that works. Even Social Security, just, you know, bare minimum SSI, 661, 671 a month, all of a sudden works. And... So from a business perspective, this is something that works at scale as well, I would assume. Because it's a tenth of the cost. Yeah. We basically call it 50 grand a door to do a Cadillac, gorgeous, architectural digest quality build out of one of these villages. Which, yeah, the $350 rent basically pencils out as an investment. Where That's these government cool. units in LA that are 550 to 700 grand. Yeah. You know, so the government pays for more than 70% of that in most cases on yeah. the build out. And then they're also paying with what used to be Section 8 vouchers, but Housing Choice vouchers. And they're basically paying the rent every month. And then you're just isolating people. Yeah. So you got somebody that's struggling with loneliness and, you know, kind of emptiness and being at the bottom or narcotic addiction or alcohol addiction. And you just took them away from a community, however unhealthy, but you took them away from what little community they had under the bridge. And you stuck them in this $700,000 hipster condo in L.A. and their addiction goes with them. They're going to kill themselves. Mm. And they're going to isolate more than being out in the woods or under the bridge was isolating. I'm reminded of the TED Talk that the root of addiction is loneliness. You get people into community that significantly increases their chance of recovery and moving on and a, abandoning. A big chunk of the science behind the design of our communities is Rat Park was what the science is called, but that was the shift in addiction recovery research. And yeah, community, healthy relationships, healthy community yeah. is much more effective than a lot of medical interventions and even professional interventions. Now, getting back to the current political climate, are you seeing a softening of the polarization that we have because I see it in the form of long-form podcast conversations across that divide where you have podcasts like Rogan and Ruben Dave Rubin and those, and those guys. 
that they're having those conversations and I'm starting to see it filter among some people, especially Gen X and millennials who are really just tired of the hyperpolarization and digging into your towers and trenches and lobbing those grenades across that ideological divide, if you will. Are you seeing that from a leadership perspective that that's starting to filter up to that? Yes, but they're not allowed to say it in front of the camera. Oh. A lot of these folks are friends. These congressmen and these senators are praying together, weekly Bible studies in private. And they have deep, meaningful relationships grounded in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And yet, when the cameras turn on, they have to pretend, for their own political lives, they feel, they have to pretend like they're enemies, mortal enemies. And I don't think it's as violent of a change. I think it's been a gradual change, yeah. you know, over the last... Yeah. And I'm too young to, you know, to talk about generational examples of that. But I'm incredibly encouraged, you know, when we're having cigars in D.C. and we're praying with some of these guys and talking about what God's doing in their lives. But, yeah, there's a toxicity that's probably out of the, you know, the way we do media right now, 24-hour media cycle stuff. And then... What's it going to take to change that public face? I think we... As a nation, but individually, if we can't convince anyone else to join us, I think we need to repent for our own lives and, and any groups we represent. I encourage, you know, cabinet secretaries and chairman of committees in Congress, like, you need to repent for your agency. Even if you weren't, you know, in charge of HHS when that, when that, that. thing happened. You inherited you, you that. You need to prayerfully look back at everything. And everyone that's been impacted by these policies, both, you know, of that's cool. ignorance and action. And you need to repent. Ooh. You know, as a government, we need to repent. As a church, we need to repent of some of the things we've done, certainly back in history. But also last week, maybe this morning, we need to humble ourselves and, and repent. And then realize that in this work with the homelessness concern is, is a good example of realizing that. Think about the way the Lord looks at every single human being. Yeah. What can we do to see people the way God sees us each? Yeah. And cares for every single one of us, leaves the 99 to pursue the one. And I think everyone should apply that to homelessness first, but then try to apply it to their, what they think are their political opponents as well. What's your overall vision? What's your big dream? What's your big, hairy, audacious goal that you want to work towards my wife's working in the anti-trafficking work and i'm primarily working in this homelessness question in an american context right now and i think what i'm most excited about is this village concept this community engagement model for permanent supportive housing it works like really 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 works like i don't have to sell it like when people kind of see the model and you know think about it they're like oh that would change everything it's like yeah that's what i just said but it's, people realize it relatively quickly. Yeah. No matter who they are. And especially if they've been praying and crying out to God for a solution yeah. in this area. They see it right away. There's a church in town here that literally offered to donate land the day they heard about it, yeah. the concept. Yeah. And um, because they've been crying out to God for a solution to this problem in our society. And that they would be a part of it, that God would use them to be a part of the solution. And so I think when we attack 
and begin to solve, you know, I won't be as hubristic to say solve homelessness, but when we begin to solve some of these intractable, impossible problems as a community and as a church, then we start rethinking everything else. It's like, oh, wow, like heroin addiction was really scary and homelessness was really scary, but we're making headway. Like we're doing this thing. Like maybe public schools can be good, right? Maybe we can solve all these other problems. Maybe my church can do evangelism effectively. Maybe my marriage can be healed. Maybe our church can help others heal their marriage and relationship with their, you know, people's relationship with sons, daughters, and, and fathers and mothers. And I think it's that what I'm actually selling, I'm not selling tiny homes. I'm selling hope. Hope that we can solve yeah. the biggest problems in our society, that the solutions look a lot like the teachings of Christ. Yeah. And we would all do well to reread scripture in the context of the problems that we're seeing in our society. All right. I want to close this off. And if you don't feel comfortable doing this, that's totally fine. But I want to close this off because I'm hearing in this conversation that that move of intellectual Christian to really Holy Spirit led heart led Christian was a big turning point in your life. You mentioned you weren't a good husband. You mentioned you weren't a good father. I guarantee you right now there are people that are listening right now. There are guys, there may be some women listening right now that that's where they are, but they're feeling this tug in their spirit that I want to make that move. I want to make that jump. What would you recommend? And would you mind praying for them? I would, uh, this cigar's really strong, I'm crying. Good question. I would recommend examining your life. And it's an ongoing thing. This isn't a one-time thing. Examine your life. Fall on your knees. Cry out to God for forgiveness. Repent. We all know. You know, there's no such thing as a secret sin. Repent and seek forgiveness from your Creator first. And you have that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... Start wanting that for your family. Start wanting that for your community and your coworkers. And um, it's real. He's real. And he's, this is not a doctrinal statement, but I just, I envision a all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God just watching us every moment of every day, just hoping that we turn to him in a meaningful way and we point our lives towards him and what he wants in our lives. And I, I literally envision, you know, the angels breaking out in celebration when, when we each, you know, turn, even if it's a little bit, back towards Christ. Uh, I'll try to pray something like that right now. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for these men. Thank you for this medium to share what, what you've done in our family's lives. Lord, we just pray your blood over everyone listening. We pray that they believe you enough and believe what you've done to me and with me and for me enough to pursue you more in their lives, no matter where they're at in their walk. We just, you know, forgive our unbelief, Lord. And I just pray that everyone that's listening knows that you're real, knows that you love them, knows that you want them to walk closer with you and to be with you in heaven, in your heaven, 
when their time on earth here is done, Lord. Just pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Joe Basil, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle, and I want to go to Dallas, and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky, and Chicago, and Phoenix, Atlanta, D.C., Charlotte, back to Southern California, and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So, can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. I'm sure I know the answer to this one. Cigars or pipe? Cigar. How'd you get into cigars? My father... Eh, it doesn't count. It's a Swisher Sweet story, but... <laughs> it does count. It does count, because I started on Philly Titans when I was 18 or 19 in college. I think this is... I'm allowed to say this. He's, he's far enough in his pastoral ministry to, for me to share this, but he got my older brother and I some cigars on a canoe trip, and we never got the boat in the water. It was this horrible downpour, yeah. and we were trying to launch the boat. And we literally never launched the boat. And we literally, we built a lean-to with a tarp and we built a fire and we were just trying to dry out our clothes and our socks. And he went back into town and got a pack of Swisher Sweets, strawberry, I think. And uh, <laughs> I won't explain my age at the time, but, and we didn't tell mom that we never went out in the water. We just stayed there for a couple of days with each other. Yeah. And that was my first cigar in the sounds like a special time. It's a really special time. And then follow-up times, fishing with my dad. I would assume favorite cigar is Safari Cigars. SafariCigar.com. Uh, <laughs> Safari Cigar, the Gordo, the 60 Ring Gauge Maduro Box Press is my favorite. It's a pretty special cigar. I like it. The one that I, I've got one more right here. I've, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I recommend people to go check out SafariCigar.com most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? I am a, you know, if mine are not with me and I'm a lifelong customer and supporter of the Padron family and, and what they're doing down there. And Grandpa Padron, before he passed, was a powerful acquaintance and friend of my father-in-law and I. And no English, we'd go down to the factory and I'd try my Mexican Spanish with a Cuban guy and some of the vocab would work. After about an hour, he would decide to 
opened that bottom drawer in his desk in the factory down in Little Havana in Miami, and he would literally get out the stuff that they were getting ready to launch. Yeah. You know, so they're super premiums. Yeah. So what, what's become their 26 series and, and up. And, you know, to share that with Jose Orlando Padron before he passed Ooh. was pretty special. And I, I would not want to try to buy those in a retail shop. <laughs> <laughs> Most memorable cigar experience. The fishing story with my dad is the nice. most important. I ordered some online during college and some Dominican. I don't even know what they were. And two of us tried to stand up and go inside, go to the bathroom and like fell over in the backyard. And you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't quickly forget things like that. Marvel or DC? No comment. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Sorry, dad. Favorite food? All of it. <laughs> Favorite liquid pairing with your smokes? I'm on an Eagle Rare kick right now. With cigars. Dogs, cats, neither, both. Uh, if, if my wife's listening, we have too many dogs and too many cats, and we should really pare it down a little <laughs> bit. But if we're going to have one left, it should be a dog. Nickname growing up or in college? Joe Mama. Joe Mama. I like that. Three favorite books. Not titled the Holy Bible. Three books of the Bible probably right now. I think um, from a business standpoint, Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lancioni really helped me break through. And that was the, we had a curriculum around it at the dairy farm. And that really changed things and taught vulnerability and buy-in and trust. Yeah. So you can have healthy disagreements. And that really changed things for me. Another book by him, it's called Death by Meeting. And I would literally keep it on my desk at the farm and people would be like, Hey Joe, you want to jump in on this meeting? And I wouldn't even turn from my computer. I would just slide the, book, <laughs> slide the book over death by meeting. I'm allergic to PowerPoint. I'm allergic to meetings, even though I'm good at them. And probably any A.W. Tozier book. And this is cheating. This is four, but my pastor in DC, Mark Batterson has a book titled whisper. And it's about hearing the voice of God in your life and the different ways that the Bible lays out to do that yeah. and, you know, personal stories and experiences and, you know, how to pray for God dreams, how to pray, you know, how to read the scripture to hear the voice of God in your life. And I definitely recommend it and I'm not getting commissions yeah. to say that. Best type of cheese. If you've had craft low fat cheddar, it comes from our, it comes from more than likely milk from one of our cows, but I'll, I'll do the brie thing. If I'm trying to be fancy for Hannah. Last two questions. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. I'd want to meet my great-grandfathers and experience what we all get to experience with each other over these cigars with, you know, the men that went before me just to understand my birthright. What do you know about them? They were farmers that worked too hard and didn't make any money farming. That you know, they fled, you know, brokenness and in Europe primarily and German on my dad's side, Scots Irish, Native American on my mom's side. Yeah. But I just wanna understand my birthright and generational blessings. That's cool. That would come from them. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? I think we're celebrating not only 
hundreds of communities in North America engaging on this tiny home village concept, but that we have a, you know, formal, you know, kind of 90-10 vote in Congress and the Senate, you know, across party lines in a meaningful way to both allow these kind of developments and encourage them and allow the community to be the solution rather than looking to the government for solutions like this. And we're celebrating the bill signing some champagne. Joe Basil, thanks for coming on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thank you, brother. Thank you.